So my job is to introduce the panelists today uh, and their terrific group. Uh, the first is Suzanne Desroches. Uh, she is the Deputy Director for Infrastructure in New York City, the New York City Mayor's Office of Recovery and Resilience. Uh, she leads the city's efforts to adapt infrastructure systems across the region um, to address the risks of climate change. And prior to that, uh, she was at my old alma mater, uh, the Port Authority, uh, where she was the Chief of Resilience and Sustainability in the Engineering Department. Uh, and she, in that capacity, she oversaw the incorporation of sustainability and climate resiliency into the agency's capital projects uh, as well as programs. She also led the development of the Climate Resilience Design Guidelines, which incorporate future climate impacts into design strategies. I mean, you'd think that this was a, a no-brainer, but I do remember 10 or 15 years ago, Actually, I won't talk about the Port Authority, but being in a meeting with the uh, MTA where climate change was not factored into any of their capital programs. Um, oh, well, that's just such an easy target. Um, I apologize. Uh, uh, our next panelist is uh, Bradford Swing, uh, who is the Director of Energy Policy and Programs uh, in the Boston Mayor's Office of environment, energy, and uh, open space. Uh, he is responsible for initiating the city of Boston's uh, energy program. Uh, Boston, he has a little pitch for Boston here. I should have given New York a chance. Uh, Boston has <laughs> been ranked three times the number one city for energy efficiency by the American Council uh, for energy, for an energy efficiency economy. I'm sure one of the New York people will have something to counter with in their uh, comments. Uh, he uh, initiated the creation of the Renew Boston Trust, which is a self-funding energy efficiency uh, project finance program, and Renew Boston, a service of the city of Boston um, uh, that partners with utilities uh, to help Boston residents, businesses, and institutions uh, save energy. Uh, our third panelist is Tommy Wells uh, from Washington, D.C. He is the director of the Department of Energy and Environment, was appointed in 2015, and he is chiefly responsible for protecting the environment and conserving the natural resources of our nation's capital. Uh, most recently, he served as the D.C. Council member, representing Ward 6, where he lives with his family. Uh, and a position he held since uh, 2006. Uh, during his time on the council, he garnered broad support for his efforts to make the district uh, more livable, more walkable, uh, and in that capacity, he also was very much involved in doubling the city's capital bike share program. And for the finale here, we have our um, chair. See, look at him, it's like, no, no, no. I think I've introduced Richard so many times, um, but not so look, <laughs> look at this. Uh, so uh, Richard uh, is the board chair of NYSERDA. Is that the right title for the moment? Uh, but most of you know him. Most of you know him uh, uh, as the uh, energy czar brought on by Governor Cuomo in 2013. Uh, in that capacity, he uh, oversaw and managed New York State's uh, entire energy portfolio ranging from 
uh, the New York State Department of Public Service, to the Power Authority, to Long Island Power Authority, uh, as well as NYSERDA. Uh, he's a terrific guy, and I really regret that this is probably the last time I'll have a chance to introduce him. Who knows? And with that, <laughs> that speaks to me, not to Richard. Why don't you all come on up? Marcy, I don't know if that's about you or about me. <laughs> well, thank you all for, for coming. So in our tour of energy policy, uh, we have spent time at the federal level. And as Bill said, we had the opportunity to, uh, to be with Secretary Moniz. And we've also had the opportunity to discuss states. So today we have the opportunity to explore what cities are doing in energy policy. Um, and we know that there are a number of major city initiatives on energy and climate change. C40 is an example. The Bloomberg's uh, Ener American Cities Climate Challenge is another example, but there are others. And so the panel today, we're going to talk about goals, but we're going to go beyond goals to talk about specific policies that Boston, New York City, and Washington, D.C. are pursuing. We want to talk about what authorities... Uh, these cities have relative to states and, where appropriate, federal authorities, and really how important these lofty energy issues are in cities where mayors are always at risk of being voted out of office when the garbage isn't picked up or uh, the snowplows don't work very well. So um, let's start with a getting to know you question. So this is not rehearsed, all right? So I want you to finish the sentence. I'll start with you, Suzanne. Oh, go ahead. I, <laughs> I know you're the best. Uh, I, I can throw one to Marcia, too, but I won't do that. Uh, I joined city government because? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so I spent about 12 years in the private sector uh, working as an industrial designer. Um, and while that was fulfilling, um, I come from a long line of public servants. My dad ran a public utilities in Connecticut. My mother was a teacher. And the, um, the business development side of being, in, uh, being a design director just wasn't for me. So sort of mid-course uh, in my 30s, I went back to school and decided to um, sort of devote the rest of the time that I have in working to actually try to move policies forward that make people's lives better. Great. All right, Brad. Uh, I got <laughs> interested in energy because I got a job at the city of Boston after paying off my law school debts and <laughs> leaving uh, Foley Hoag, a law firm in Boston, after five and a half years after being uh, an intellectual property litigator. And I got involved in energy policy because I'm a generalist who has no background in what I'm going to talk to you about today. <laughs> uh, but I say to my team, I like that because we don't know why things can't get done. And I got involved in energy policy because we had a pilot green building that was funded by a city trust that we were able to design and construct outside of normal governmental processes. 
This was like designed in 1999 and dedicated in 2002. And this allowed us to use a single project to dig into everything about why architects and engineers didn't speak with each other, what it meant for life cycle cost accounting to explain for energy design decisions that might be value engineered out. And I was just talking at the table about this, what it meant to go to our building department with the very first building in the city of Boston that had an engineer stamp without a boiler or a furnace because it's entirely geothermal. So we used that single project to get foundation funding for a green building task force. And by 2007, we had green building zoning. So I got involved because I discovered that the power of projects really is municipal government is uniquely situated to use a single project as an educational vehicle and a way to push for the achievement of that project and create policy at the same time. All right, so Tommy, uh, the one thing you should know about city government is... <laughs> plow the street. <laughs> at, a, at a more broad level. <laughs> He's been in government long enough to know that if you ask a question yes, that I, you, you don't want to answer, you ask a different one. Thank you for having me, acknowledge all the dignitaries, <laughs> and um, just how honored I am to be here. And then, but to, to say that... Um, that especially as cities have gotten more involved in climate change, that it's, it's clear that cities are the problem, but cities are the solution. And that's um, you know, where, where I see the, um, the role of cities. All right, so why don't we stay with you? Uh, so what are the energy climate goals? You can talk about what, whatever metrics you want in the city state otherwise known as Washington, D.C. Well, thanks for, notice, for noting it's the city. The city leadership, we, we do believe in science, and we recognize our responsibilities to, to humankind to do our best to make this a better planet. And so <clears throat> with that, in looking at cities and the role in climate change, and it, I think there's, a, there's more, a, a much more of a role of cities with the rest of the world than there has been in the past. And so I was recently at a meeting with uh, um, the director general for the EU of the environment. And he starts the, the luncheon with, we've got 13 years before it's irreversible, the, what we've done on global warming and climate change. And so that focuses the mind. And when you think about cities, we don't generate a lot of power. I mean, we, we're looking more at microgrids. We certainly heat and cool some buildings with, um, with units inside. But for the most part, cities are consumers, and that's where we stand. We, we don't have a lot of coal-fired power plants except for the one that Congress refuses to get rid of right on Capitol Hill. And so in terms of our policies, we have two approaches as consumers. One is you shrink the, the size of the pie. You've got to use less energy. And then the other is you want to increase the amount of green energy that you do use. And we know that it's a virtuous cycle that the more you shrink the big pie, the larger your renewables become a portion of that pie. So we just passed a law. And in D.C., we're, we function as a city-state. And we just passed a law that says... All of our, the energy that is used in Washington, D.C. has to be renewable by 2032. 
And then the other part is how we're, we're a city where we don't tear our building down, buildings down very often. We keep them a long time. And so how do you retrofit the energy users? 74% of the greenhouse gases are due to our buildings. Mm -hmm. And so we spent some time looking at Boston and what they're doing, but um, talking to our counterparts in New York and LA and Seattle, same issue. We're not gonna be able to just bulldoze and come back with a great green building code and build new. We've got to retrofit. And so in the bill, we put in, we've been benchmarking our buildings now for six years. If you don't report your benchmarking score, you're fined. So we've got data that goes back six years. And so we are setting, according to Energy Star standards, within five years, buildings are gonna to have to meet certain energy standards. And it's a mean that as people meet it, that mean becomes harder to meet. And they can either do it through a prescriptive method or on their own and just meet that standard. And if they're not, they're fined. And we're working right now in figuring out what that fine is going to look like. And so we also um, passed in that bill a new funding mechanism, well, added to a funding mechanism of a surcharge on bills to raise $100 million for Green Bank for D.C. that we had already legislated but not funded. And now we're, it'll be funded over the next three to five years at $100 million. And for us, that, that's a good amount because that's added to our sustainable energy utility, which is also funded in the same way at $20 million a year. And so that will be the funds to especially work with multifamily buildings that are your B-class buildings, mm -hmm. that are your lower-income residents that you don't want to lose out of your cities. And so putting those things together, that as consumers as a city, we're requiring um, a renewable portfolio energy standard that's going to get bigger and bigger. And then on our buildings, they're going to have to perform better and better. So we're a city that is, um, is has been growing at the fastest rate that we ever have, except for right after World War II. And our energy consumption over the past three years has gone down by 3%. Mm -hmm. So we know this can work. And we also know from our um, European counterpart cities that this can work. And so that's where we are. Okay, so just, just to be clear on this. So with respect to the energy efficiency, started out with benchmarking, but now it's turned into... A mandate. A mandate. Okay. And with respect to the to the renewable portfolio standard, that's that's also going to be a mandate. That's going to be funded through a, a a charge on utility bills. Yep. Okay. Thank you. All right, Suzanne. So why don't you talk about? Let's just talk about goals first, and then we'll come sure. back to to policy. Okay. Great. So um, you know you're going to hear some familiar themes. Uh, the city has been growing. We expect population to continue growing in New York City. Right now, we're about 8.5 million. Uh, we expect that to get close to 9 million by 2050. Um, so we are, you know, from a, from a policy and goals perspective, it's very similar to what you heard from Tommy. So how do we reduce how much we're consuming? How do we replace that with renewables um, and, you know, storage technologies? Um, and we'll t I'm sure we'll talk about some of those uh, specifics further in the conversation. Um, but the, the point that I want to, and, you know, benchmarking, and we're moving towards a building mandate, and, you know, all very similar things. But, but one thing that Tommy didn't, didn't mention um, is just that we do have uh, sort of significant inequity in terms of uh, who bears the brunt of these costs, right? So almost half the city of New York lives near poverty. Um, so that's roughly 50% of all New Yorkers, family of four, making $47,000 a year. So I have a tough time imagining living in New York City on $47,000 a year. 
I don't have a family of four. So what we're trying to do is figure out how those costs are distributed equitably um, so that we aren't just continuing to pass all the costs through to the folks who can, at this point in time, already not afford their energy cost burden. Um, and, and how do we do that both through policies and programs? Okay, we're going to come back to this question of environmental justice in a minute. So, uh, so Brad, let's just, uh, if you can, uh, if you want to add anything to the goals, but I think what I'm interested in you talking about here is uh, the relationship with state, how city versus state authorities, because obviously uh, uh, Tommy doesn't have to worry about a state, but but you and Suzanne do We'd have like. to work. Uh, Boston is <laughs> the cap. Your own state, I know that. <laughs> Boston is the capital city of New England, but uh, there's a big difference between City Hall and Beacon Hill. Um, yeah, I think the differences in the posture of uh, municipal government are really important. I mean, you you can set a renewable portfolio standard. We have to rely on state government to do that. New York City has plenary building code jurisdiction, and we rely on a state building code. So we feel quite constrained by that, to be honest. But to the fact that we can't uh, set a renewable portfolio standard, the uh, mayor is having us enter into municipal aggregation into a community choice energy program where we, as city government, will do the procurement of energy electricity supply for our residents in an opt-out situation where we can increase the amount of renewable energy that's in that supply purchase. So it's our way of at the municipal governmental level trying to amp up sort of our renewable portfolio, so to speak. Um, we're right in the process of deciding what the component of the, uh, the green, uh, the uh, renewable purchase will be, uh, but uh, that policy is rolling out. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about this question of mandates versus markets. Uh, certainly when you're talking about uh, um, the real estate industry, uh, so usually a powerful interest in cities. Uh, so maybe an open question for any of you, all of you. Sure, I'll start. Um, so, you know, I, I think we need both would be my answer. Um, you know, I have a couple of good examples of uh, a mandate that's working really well. So in New York City, we are phasing out the use of fuel oil in boilers. Um, that has uh, rapidly increased our air quality. Um, we see that as uh, that would not have happened through a market um, incentive program. We don't believe that that needed to be a mandate. Uh, we also, in the city, um, have a requirement to have 80% of our energy capacity be within the city jurisdiction. Um, and that causes us to have these really old plants because the market is not incentivizing those plants to repower, right? So we have examples of where the markets are actually not, um, they're, they're incentivizing the use of very old generation, which in, in the city, but a mandate is also making that complicated as well. So you really do need both. Um, in order to try to uh, resolve the, those issues. Right, let's just for a moment to stay on this issue of these power plants in the city. So you're saying you have a requirement that you, within your city authorities to have a certain amount of in-city generation. Correct. And you want to have that for, uh, for uh, reliability issues? Mm -hmm. Okay, but then the reason why markets, who determines these, why these other plants are not repowering? 
Who's who's whose authorities? Where does that? So what we have been advocating for is changes to the market in that the NISO runs okay, to, so in this, order to. Sorry, this is the NISO. So it's a first. So it's a first. So <laughs> Correct. A, okay. Yes. So changes to the market in order to incentivize those that repowering or <coughs> retirement if they were not economical. Okay. So this is an example where the city has an authority to uh, to say we want to have a certain amount of in-state generation, but but it, but the that wholesale mm -hmm. generation, the rules that govern those plants and markets is the, fa the feds. Yeah, the mm. reliability requirement is not a city jurisdiction. That's a state board. Okay, so so we, it's even more complicated. Okay, good. <laughs> I think in general, <clears throat> America's made the greatest progress on direct regulation, and when you look at the cafe standards and things like that, that that the um, that if you leave it to the market or just work on manipulating the market, I'm not, I don't know if we can make as much progress as we need to as fast as we need to go. I know in DC, our, our standard offer of service is what your residential and small businesses use. And our, um, our power company is a distributive power company. They can't generate and sell generation. Mm -hmm. So they buy it on the market. So this um, recently, over the past two or three years, um, residential power bills have come down, even with our surcharges, that it's cheaper um, because of fracking, they're just getting cheaper and cheaper power. And to enter into that um, around the market is um, gets complicated. The other part is, is that when we talk to our developers, when they build a building to a high standard and to use the geothermal, say off the, the sewer pipes and the other things that we're pushing them to, to explore, that they generally churn buildings when they develop them, that they're gonna sell them pretty quickly. And if the building next door is a much lower energy standard, and so therefore it's a cheaper building, but they're on the same block, that that other building will sell first. And so there's, currently they're, they're nervous that the reward is not there mm -hmm. for building to a higher standard. So it's only through a regulatory standard that I think that we can even the playing field. So I'm somewhat bullish on, um, on mandates. So you're saying that the, that the mandate actually uh, creates a level playing field so that the real estate industry isn't, isn't pushing, pushing back as much? As much. As much. Mm. Okay. <laughs> you know, whenever we've uh, entered into a kind of mandate, our, our green building zoning, um, again, because we don't have the building code, we had to jam uh, green building requirements into our zoning code, which is pretty unnatural. Mm -hmm. But um, what we heard really clearly from the real estate community was just, you know, make it clear, make it fair, and make it apply generally. And uh, we uh, used that um, basic insight when we adopted in June of this past year, um, we call it the smart utilities policy. Uh, it addresses five technologies. It's an attempt to do integrated uh, energy, water, sewer, smart transport, uh, utility infrastructure planning for new areas of the city. For energy, it requires private developers of a million and a half square feet developments to do feasibility assessments and master planning for district energy microgrids. And um, what we're finding is that um, these, uh, uh, these requirements result in 
private projects hiring advanced energy system planners when they wouldn't otherwise. The ordinary course of business of going through our development review process would just come up with regular building designs. But this is requiring them to really look at the potential for district energy, for microgrids within their large multi-building projects. And we're beginning to see some great results of uh, of uh, islandable resilient projects that will then be included in the agreement with the city planning agency that governs its construction. It's still a new policy, but we have seven major projects that are going through this required feasibility assessment and planning. I have to say that I was very proud of Mayor Walsh in Boston for allowing us to adopt this policy because we explained clearly to him that we're trying to get the benefits of these kinds of energy systems and the resilience that come with them in areas of Boston that aren't governed by campuses. We have 32 institutions of higher learning in our very small city. But we need these benefits in parts of the city that aren't governed by a campus. So we're trying to crack the nut of what it takes to have a multi-owner, multi-user district system. And we are candid with our private development community that we have not cracked the nut on what kind of ownership structures will satisfy their investors and their um, various uh, use profiles with the different investment groups they have to work with. But at the same time, we are coming up with engineeringly feasible, financially feasible district systems that we hope will really push the broader community to resolve the barriers to actually building these district energy microgrids in the private sector. So that's an example of a, of a policy that requires study and uh, is coming up with some really great results. So I can see that, that this uh, district energy solution, what the role of city can be in terms of uh, uh, kind of an easy pass in terms of some of the zoning and planning issues and also in terms of uh, reducing kind of pre-development costs, I, I get all that, but what about having to deal with the uh, local utilities and the uh, state regulatory authority? So we, um, we have told our local uh, electric utility, which is Eversource Energy, that for the projects that are going through this district energy microgrid planning process, that we want the regular meetings that a developer would have with the utility to happen in the mayor's office. We are saying to them that we are challenging their legal interpretation of their own franchise. They have a certain view of what is allowable under the streets of the city. Uh, we actually challenge their legal interpretation of that. We have put them on notice for that. We fortunately have a new chair of the Department of Public Utilities in Massachusetts, and we look forward to working with a, a new DPU in Massachusetts. And we're saying to these private development groups that these projects are, the, by definition, the most important projects to the mayor and the city. They're the largest projects that we have. And uh, these projects are, uh, are vital for us to figure out how these financially feasible, very attractive, we're seeing like in-building nanogrids with islandable resilience, with solar and storage, with five-year paybacks, where we see private development groups in our meetings look to their design team and say, why aren't you bringing these solutions to us? And they said, well, it's not the ordinary course of business to do so. We're required to do so because of the nature of the feasibility assessment master planning outline. And so 
we are making something of a bet. Where this is, we have very limited power, municipal power. We're making something of a bet that lining up these projects will put political pressure on the governor, on the DPU, on the utilities to find a way to resolve the barriers that currently do exist. We were absolutely upfront with the development community and with the mayor before we adopted this policy that there were these long list of unresolved regulatory issues that needed to be resolved and that we were going to use these projects to outline what needs to be resolved and to get resolution. And, and Richard, I would be cautious, a little cautious on the assumption about the role of utilities. I think we have to think this through. But in America, we always think energy has to be electricity. How do we turn coal? How do we turn all these other things, the sun, into electricity? And then that's in a regulatory environment. But I just took a delegation of our utility leaders and developers to, um, to Copenhagen and Brussels. Mm. And their heating and cooling, when they had the, the energy crisis in the 70s, they went a different direction than where a lot of America went, as you know. That their heating and cooling buildings off their aquifers. Mm -hmm. they're, um, they're harvesting energy in different ways that if you have a large server farm, you can run pipes behind the, um, you know, the computers or the servers, pull heat out of there. You can pull heat off your subway system, run water through, and then run it through your buildings and get a constant temperature. We're right now exploring to figure out how we can utilize um, our, um, our sewer system for a constant source of temperature and use geothermal off the sewer system. Now, in the event that you have multiple customers that are unrelated and we charge them a bill to do this and we use or do we use the, um, the rights of the utilities to go across public space, to what degree we utilize utilities and the rights that they have in order to create sub-utilities that are not necessarily regulated is an open new mm. um, frontier mm. for all of us. But I think we all have to be cautious to not assume energy, and I know you don't in practical purposes, but energy, um, we have to be much broader of what energy is um, for America. So in terms of sewage, uh, the, so I guess most cities own their sewage system, right? So this is an area where cities would have quite a lot of uh, ability to operate, independence to operate. That's right. Okay, good. Uh, Suzanne, uh, it's it's a related a related topic, but this question of uh, community choice aggregation. Do you, do you want to talk about that? Sure. Okay. Um, so I was interested in in hearing uh, Boston's example, and you know we've we've been tracking this issue quite closely in our office um, and looking into you know the applicability of a CCA for New York City and you know one of our main policy goals is to change the renewable power mix within New York City um, and talk, going back to what I was talking about earlier because we have this 80% capacity rule and we have limited transmission within the city we really need sort of a, a, a sea change in how we get power into the city. And so if our policy goals are to 
bring renewable power directly into New York City, how would a CCA function in order to be able to do that? So, you know, we have not made a determination as to whether or not that's a, that's a way that we would go. Um, if we could figure out that it was cost effective and would bring new transmission and new renewables into New York City, if we did a CCA, that would be something that becomes more attractive. We're not interested in a CCA in which you buy offsets elsewhere, um, and then we maintain a grid that is 80, 90% fossil-based. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that's a tension um, and, and, and something that we're uh, very closely tracking. You might want to look at Cambridge, Massachusetts, which is doing a CCA where they hope to add a surcharge to do within Cambridge renewable energy projects, because otherwise the Massachusetts model is a very much a rec purchase approach. Right. So again, I, I think we also have the issue of scale. Yeah. Right. So you know we have seen small jurisdictions do this, uh, certainly in California, but it's a different regulatory construct, so it works differently than, than how it would work here. Um, but when we think about the scale of eight and a half million people and the struggle to keep that util that energy uh, as cost effective as possible, as well as bring renewables in, those that's a balance that's difficult to strike. All right, so this is again a question for, for any of you uh, related to natural gas. Uh, mm. You talked about <laughs> microgrids and uh, the, Suzanne, you talked about the benefits of of conversion of fuel oil um, to natural gas. So, what, what, how are you dealing? Are there are you finding that there are obstacles to uh, expansion of the natural gas infrastructure, and how are you dealing with that? So, we just issued um, our carbon-free Boston report. So, Mayor Walsh has a goal of carbon neutrality by 2050. And we uh, commissioned Boston University Institute of Sustainable Energy to do a very in-depth analysis of the policy choices and the relative costs of them to achieve carbon neutrality. Um, obviously, carbon neutrality runs um, counter in the long run to a policy that we adopted in June to look at district energy microgrids, which, practically speaking, will be natural gas-fired cogeneration. We also have a mayor who was freaked out by the downtown flooding in Boston last January and March. And every time he sees me when he's getting into his car and heading to a van, he says, where's my resilience, Brad? Where's my resilience? And uh, so, you know, the reality is if we are going to have, like, islandable resilience in, within these districts of the city, they are going to be natural gas-fired cogen. So it's really a question of transition and how and when to make those transitions. Uh, we had a real breakthrough. Um, Mayor Walsh, in uh, a speech uh, this fall, dedicated his entire speech to coastal resilience issues. And he announced what we call the Resilient Boston Harbor Plan. And it was the result of a preliminary cost estimate of a barrier in Boston Harbor. We have some weird... Um, topographical opportunities to put barriers up, but um, both cost and feasibility, very preliminary study, uh, granted, but it really, uh, the mayor said, you know, the direction I want to go in is to really improve the resilience of the waterfront, looking to the quality of life, improving the quality of life as we deal with 
how we can plan our waterfront parks and how we can make very targeted infrastructure investments that really do make a huge difference based on these science-based, very granular neighborhood waterfront neighborhood plans. So 10% of the city's capital budget annually now will be dedicated towards making those improvements, which allows me, if I might, to say that we're excited to see that um, um, like policy announcement um, combined with a uh, program that's up and running in Boston called the Renew Boston Trust, which is a self-funding energy savings performance contract for all of our municipal buildings. We have created an alternative finance unit in our budget office that very carefully guards the underwriting of the terms and conditions of that debt. When we go to our debt market annually, we are now going to be able to expand what we borrow to cover the financing of the uh, that year's work on the performance contract. The guaranteed energy savings will pay back that that uh, debt line. And we're beginning to work with our city treasurer on combining um, a municipal energy efficiency performance contract-based bonding uh, bit with this announcement that 10% of our capital budget will go for resilience improvements, and we hope to bond, have a green bond for both mitigation and resilience aspects of the city's annual work. So, so Tommy, do you, do you have experiences with the rating agencies? Are they uh, concerned about... Uh, resiliency issues and flooding and costs in terms of as they look at the ratings? That's a great question because for the very first time, I'm not sure where I was. Um, maybe on vacation, whatever, but the mayor was up here um, making the pitch about, you know, getting a good bond rating for the city at the rate that the city borrows money for building roads, schools, and, the, and infrastructure. And I got some frantic texts from a chief of staff saying Moody's wants our um, resiliency planning. Mm -hmm. And it's the first time ever. And so um, the bond rating agencies, as you can imagine, I mean, Lloyd's have been, has been doing this for a while, of uh, scoring cities and infrastructure and how it should be insured. So the bond rating agencies were, would be close behind. And so that is part now of no matter who the elected official is that says whether they believe in global warming or not, they have to decide the surcharge that they'll be putting on their, their citizens, their mm -hmm. taxpayers, if they don't have resiliency plans and assume that they can mitigate, um, at least um, mitigate the, the impact of, of a changed climate. All right, so we're just up, about out of time. I want somebody to ask a question about uh, uh, environmental justice, because I'm not going to be able to ask that question. But just in closing... Uh, we're going to end the way we began. Okay. All right. So, Suzanne, I'm going to start with you again. Excellent. The one thing I wanted to say that I didn't is? Uh, good question. Um, I think that we – I touched on the need for additional transmission. I would be remiss to not um, sort of – explain why New York City needs additional transmission. So um, we're excited about offshore wind, which is coming, um, but we have looked at how do we get the energy to be 
well, we were targeting 80% uh, renewable. That target is now 100% renewable based on the governor's recent announcement. So the only way we get there is if we bring offshore wind in from the south and we bring renewable resources in from the north. And we do not have transmission in order to be able to do that effectively into New York City. So um, we didn't get a chance to talk about that. So okay. I'll close with that. Thank you. Uh, so Brad, for you? The best thing I learned from my city colleagues on this panel was. <laughs> this is a test. It's, it's almost over, I can tell you. <laughs> Actually, I'm really interested to find out that you're looking at uh, municipal aggregation in New York. Uh, and in Massachusetts, a lot of uh, smaller cities and towns have done it. But when we go to market, it's going to be a third of the load that uh, Eversource has to go to market otherwise to satisfy for basic city service. And so there are a lot of unanswered questions about just exactly how the market's going to shake out. I can't even begin to imagine what that means for you in New York. And uh, I'm always uh, glad to see my colleague Tommy just to be reminded of, you know, I want state governmental powers for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Tommy, for you, uh, the one thing that people in this room could help city governments with in energy would be? Well, I, I think that um, that what's important, especially, you know, not too long from now, we'll be going to another national election, is that there has to be an urban agenda for America. Mm. Usually, urban areas are viewed as the problem rather than the solution. And... And the role of energy, especially, and also, you know, 68% of America's population lives in urban areas. And we occupy about 3.5% of the land in the country of, of where people live. And so I think really promoting and thinking about the role of urban America, of your city, our cities, in shaping the future for the country, rather than it being so state-based, is really what will have to happen because that's where you're going to have the greatest impact in the shortest period. The impact that just my two colleagues are having on, you know, on so many residents, but also on policy and shaping the future. And they're, you know, I hate the metaphor of, of, you know, you're fixing the plane or redesigning it while you're flying it, but that is what we're doing. Hmm. And so I think the main thing is, is to, um, to recognize the, the role of urban America and being able to get us through, um, you know, a better planet. Amen. So, Bill, do you? We're going to open it up for questions.